I'm sure you've all heard of the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas this last week. Pastor Benjamin just mentioned it in our, our time of prayer together here. It's the times when people experience intense and awful suffering moments that we start to think deeply about right and wrong, our place in history, how to solve all these problems. And it is only the Christian worldview that can adequately answer these giant questions. Not only does the Bible explain to us why it is that these things are going to happen in this sinful world in which we live, it is only the Bible that gives us the solution for these persistent perennial issues that we are going to have in our individual lives and in society as a whole, but it is also in the Bible that we get inspired records of history that tell us about these things happening and how it is that the people of God are supposed to respond. We're in the book of Daniel, as we have been for quite some time as a church. The last couple of weeks, my family has been on vacation, and so uh, we kind of took a break from Daniel during that time, and we're landing back in Daniel chapter 11, right where we left off. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Daniel chapter 11. I'm going to give a little bit of a setup, kind of try to back up a a couple steps, uh, bring us back in so we're all spun up together. I think I I can do that quickly. And then we're going to read through the rest of uh, chapter 11. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go back a little bit of a time and try to apply some of what we see there uh, to our day. Daniel is a prophet in the Old Testament day. He's living during the days, the beginning days of the Persian Empire. And he has a vision that alarms him. He cries out to God, and God sends an angel to come tell Daniel the interpretation, make some meaning out of this vision that he's had. We even hear about in this particular event uh, the angel having a a battle with some demon, some spiritual force that uh, prevents his coming as quickly as Daniel might have wanted. And so it takes three weeks for the answer to the prayer to understand the vision to finally come to fruition. And the angel comes to tell Daniel what will happen to his people. I want to go ahead and just jump back a little bit in the text and read for you what it is the angel says to Daniel is the purpose of the vision and what the interpretation will be. Uh, Listen to me here, Daniel 10, verse 14. The angel says that he came to make you, Daniel, understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So again, just as a Reminder there, it's, it's to kind of help set us up. Daniel is hearing about something that will come in his future, something that will come after his days. The angel's preparing him for this. The vision is primarily about his people, the Jewish people, in the days to come after Daniel. Then the angel went on to tell Daniel a whole series of events of what will take place in history after him in Israel's future. The angel tells all about the Persian Empire and its rise and its fall to the Greek Empire under Alexander, who upon his death, his kingdom gets split up into four parts. And the angel tells about kind of the two main parts, the northern kingdom of the Seleucids and the the southern dynasty in Egypt of the Ptolemies. Now they battle together for centuries and incredible detail is given in the first half of chapter 11 
but all these events. It's fascinating to study uh, this in the Bible, then open up history books of other extra-biblical sources all confirming all of this stuff. It's quite fascinating. And this tells us all the way through the empires of Rome and up until the days in which the Roman Empire gains a footing. The last time that we were in this text, we covered the individual character, the figure of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was one of the final rulers of Greece uh, who brought great oppression upon the people of God. In fact, he had great hatred for the people of God. As we walk through what he did, it seems as though no king in history before him and maybe after him, maybe up to our day, ever hated the Jewish people and religion as much as Antiochus did. And this brings us up to the text that we get into today, starting in verse 36. I'm going to read the whole thing and then pray. If you want to have a a Bible open, you can follow along with me, starting in verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are reading a prophecy written long before the days of your son Jesus in which Daniel is foretold about what will happen with the Jewish people. And so, Father, we do have a bunch of questions about this passage. So many commentators and historians of the past have wondered what exactly to do with this. Father, more than just understanding the history being told here and where to place it in a timeline, we want to love you more. We want to understand your word, not just to fill our heads, not just to satisfy our minds and our intellects, but we want to love and honor you more. We want to be better worshipers of you. We want to do a better job at passing along faithfulness to the next generation. We want to honor you in our sanctification and our love for you and others more than ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that mighty work in us as we study this passage of the Old Testament. And we ask for this to be done according to Jesus' good name. Amen. 
Let's jump back to verse 36, and I'd ask you to follow along here with me on the text. I'll put these up on the slides for you to follow. And the king shall do as he wills. I'm going to pause real quick and just set up what we're going to be heading towards. Verse 36 introduces a major question for an enormous number of Christians in the past and the present. Uh, commentators, uh, Bible scholars, pastors, Christians of every stripe have read through this passage and between verse 35 and 36 seen some problems. And in order to solve the problems that they see there, a large number of commentators think that there is a gap that takes place between verse 35 and 36. Some will put a gap of hundreds of years. Others will place a gap of thousands of years and counting. This is not very surprising when you uncover some of the details of the text. But although you might at first reading, just as you're kind of rushing through the text, it might seem to just continue on from the previous train of thought, which just told us about Antiochus Epiphanes. This then is that king shall do as he wills. But many have seen a break. And I want to give you six reasons for why. I'm going to kind of machine gun them. Go, go pretty quick, quick here. The first reason that people see a distinction, uh, some kind of break in the timeline between 35 and 36, is because the end of verse 35 could indicate a time break. Let me just read for you verse 35. You can look at that here. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So some would say, that sounds a little bit like it's kind of saying all of these things have happened up until a point, and then the end will come, and then we're going to jump forward in history to talk about the end. Some see that. Second reason people see that there could be a break, the word and, the word and that kicks this off here is just a conjunction in Hebrew that introduces a new thought. So it's not just a continuation of the thought, but it could introduce a new thought. So just if you were to pick apart the grammar, you might notice that in many other faithful and trustworthy English translations of this, like the King James Version, the NASB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, a bunch of others, will actually use the word then instead of and, which gives us a little bit of an idea that maybe this is talking about then, farther ahead in the future, not just a continuation of the previous verse. Third reason people think there's a break. Because there's a reference here to the king, and the king shall do as he wills. Well, I made a quick note of this a few weeks ago when I talked through Antiochus Epiphanes and the passage referring directly to him earlier than this. And Antiochus is not really referred to as a king. He's referred to as a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. There's only one verse up to this point, verse 27, that might call Antiochus a king. I think it is calling Antiochus a king there. This might then introduce a new figure, one who's rightly called a king rather than Antiochus who stole the throne. So some see that. The fourth reason some see a break here is because later in this text, and we'll get there in a minute, verse 40 could indicate that there's another king being referred to as here. Because all through chapter 11, we've heard of two major dynasties, the kings in the north and the kings in the south. And verse 40, to some, sounds as though the king of the north and the south will come against this third king. So to some, they see that there. Maybe that's another indicator this is a break in the timeline. The fifth reason people see a break here is because some would argue that what is described in the passage we're covering today, 
36 through the end of the chapter, does not align with what history has recorded regarding Antiochus Epiphanes. And so they'll look through history books and go, what? Okay, we see what, what history says about Antiochus that doesn't match as clearly as the previous portion did. For the record, up through verse 35, enormous agreement. This is clearly, this is right out of all the extra-biblical texts that we have about Antiochus. There's almost no doubting that that's talking about him up through verse 35. But what happens next doesn't feel like it aligns quite as well. And so some would go, well, maybe this is then needing to be satisfied or fulfilled in another figure, not Antiochus. Now, just to show you my cards here. To me, that's the weakest argument. It's the one you have to jump out of the Bible in order to draw upon. But you need to remember, the Bible is inspired. Our history books are not. So even if they are generally trustworthy, we've we've referred to them many times in this sermon series and in the last few weeks, it's been very helpful to look at those. We should, however, take care to not let our interpretation of Scripture be subject to our record of history. The day that we read a history book, we go like, well, that's the truth. This must be all messed up. Uh, We're we're, going to have some troubles. The sixth and final reason why people think there's probably a time break here, I would argue is probably the most significant. And this argument is that the New Testament uses language from this text, either the same wording or the same, a paraphrase of the wording That sounds very, very similar here and applies it to events in the days of the New Testament writers and their future. So Jesus and the apostles use language from here to apply to their day and beyond. So not Antiochus. If that's the case, then maybe all of this is referring to somebody else. Those are the six reasons. If you had a hard time following me through that, here's the summary point. All this to be said, there are essentially three options for who this is. You can go to the next slide here. There are three options for who this king is. The first one is this. That the first option is that it is, like we said, Antiochus Epiphanes, that second century Greek ruler, and this is just a continuation of his story. Okay? So there's no time break between 35 and 36. It just is a continued flow. It's just as though it would sound if you were just reading it without any other question marks. The second option for who this might be is either Rome, collectively, or one or more of the Caesars, as it's kind of listed out here, the first century rulers over the Jewish people at that time, and a decent number of Bible scholars think that that's probably what's being referenced here. This is now the time of the Caesars being talked about. So there's a hundred years or a few hundred years gap in the timeline here between 35 and 36. And the third view is that this is, in fact, the end times Antichrist of our future, long into the future, not just hundreds, but thousands of years from the time this has been written and counting. So the the gap then between 35 and 36 is much longer, much, much, much greater in time. Now, this text, I admit, kicked my butt for the past month. Of all the study that I did throughout the book of Daniel, there were a couple of passages that might have hit the same level of difficulty as this one or or more so, but I, I say that I consulted far more commentaries on this particular text than any other text of Daniel that we've covered. Uh, More than a dozen additional commentaries to what I've already been reading through in order to try to mine out what should we make of this king here. And my clearest answer is, Rich, who who do you think it is? My clearest answer, to be the most honest with you, I don't know. 
I don't know. Dozens of different commentaries and re- I, I don't know. I'm uncertain. These three views each have their merits. The first, second, and third each have weaknesses and strengths, just as pretty often in other kind of uh, uh, arguments and debates of particular passages of Scripture. So I can't say with great certainty. I'm very open to all three of these. However, you might know this about me already if you've heard me preach many occasions before, but I am almost always compelled to take the most straightforward reading of a text. I feel dirty. When I see a text and say, I know it sounds that way, but it doesn't mean that. I hate saying that. I hate it. I almost never say it, only unless there's, there's, an, there's an exorbitant uh, uh, evidence and reasons as to why to not take that just as it says. I think that most of the time, the text means exactly what it sounds like it means. And so, I lean toward the view that this is most likely principally referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. I think that's the most likely case. It seems to me that when Daniel was hearing this and he was recording this for future generations, this is the character that was most likely dominantly in mind. I hold that with an open hand, but that's the direction I'll be going with this sermon. With that being said, it is also clear that Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament did indeed use language from these texts to refer to both events of their day and their future, So while it seems most likely that this angel intended to tell Daniel and his readers about Antiochus, chiefly, much of what is going to be said here also could apply typologically to other enemies of God's people throughout the ages. So the kind of language that is used here will be drawn upon to apply to other events that will be very similar in history, okay? In fact, we know the Bible does this all the time, uses language like this all, all the way to the end of the Bible. We are told in the book of Revelation about the wicked rule of Babylon the Great, which is a long dead ancient empire. But the idea of what Babylon represented is applied to future wicked empires. The term abomination of desolation or a, a desolator that makes something abominable, those are used for multiple types of things that refer to the same kind of event. An intentional attack against God's people in the most awful way a king can imagine. And so, while I do think that there is a future Antichrist, while I do think that during the days of the Roman Caesars, many of the bits of language used here could be applied to those guys, I think that mostly the angel means to talk about Antiochus Epiphanes in this text. I'm going to unpack that a bit. But for now, let's just read what is said about this figure. So let's look back at the text again. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall do as he wills. That's the first thing that's said right now about the nature of this particular moment in time. And this kind of language is used three other places in the book of Daniel. That a king shall do as he wills. Chapter 5 and chapter 11 already a couple other times. And each time that this language is used... It refers to a king operating as though his authority is absolute. He is not in submission. He does according to his own will. He doesn't care what other people or any God might think. He submits himself to nobody. And when this language is used, it always, always results in that king being humbled before God in some significant way. Every time. It says of him, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, 
and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He sets himself against God himself in his arrogance. Antiochus Epiphanes, to be sure, does this undoubtedly, but just like every other prideful king in history. In so doing, though, this Antiochus makes himself a target by setting himself up as an enemy of God and of his people. But his efforts are not in vain because for a time he does, in fact, succeed. Look what it says about how successful he is, how effective he is in his leading here. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall prosper. This exact same thing is stated about Antiochus earlier in Daniel. If you're with us in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel saw a different vision there of a ram and a goat, and the goat was identified as Antiochus Epiphanes. It doesn't say that in the text, but historically I think that's most likely, and that's what I argued for back then. That character then, that goat, that little horn that came up out of the goat to represent Antiochus, it says this about that king in Daniel 8. And a host will be given over to it, that king, I think Antiochus, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Same kind of prospering, same kind of effectiveness said about him there, even the same word. So what is the meaning of Till the indignation is accomplished. Okay, so he's going to look successful. For how long? Till the indignation is accomplished. That's the final straw. That's the anger and wrath, the fury that he has against the Jewish people to not accommodate anything in their religion got to a point in which he actually, and I said this last time we were here, I think we saw it earlier in the text in chapter 11, that Antiochus turns the temple in Jerusalem that was supposed to be for the only true God into a temple devoted to Jupiter, or what the Romans would call Zeus, and he offered a sacrifice of pig's flesh on an altar there. It was seen as the pinnacle abomination. It was seen in the eyes of the people and the way that they recorded in history as a worse abomination than the murder of women and children and other innocent people. Because that moment collectively pointed to his desire to show himself as victor, victorious over God. I think that's the indignation being accomplished. He prospers until that time. And it is from that time things begin to unravel or Antiochus. Just as so many wicked rulers did in the past, both before him and after him, their horrors shall appear as victories. He prospers. It's a prospering all the way up until that wickedness. It's going to get worse, and he's going to succeed more. He's going to pull off more of his wicked wiles. Just keep watching. But you'll notice that the prospering is decreed by God. How are they to think about this? He shall prosper all the way up until then, till the indignation is accomplished. Why? For what is decreed shall be done. It is written. It has been laid out in history. This will take place. God knows what is going to happen. It has been decreed by him. And if it is decreed by God, is it really losing? So easy for us to watch these things look, these kind of blows that these kings intend to throw against God, and they think they've landed a punch. They've scored a win. They've got a victory. They've taken the city. They've taken the temple. They've finally mocked God in some big and powerful way. That was decreed. But your days are numbered. 
The verses continue on. Verse 37. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. The first thing it says here is that he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. That could either mean the rulers immediately preceding him, or it could mean like, mean like ancestors' fathers, like those who came long before him. could mean either of those, right? But it tells us at least two things. First, he breaks from his tradition, and second, he sees himself as above all divine authority. Pays no attention to them. I don't care what those gods think. And why? Because he shall magnify himself above all. He will not see himself as subject to any gods because he sees himself as God. Daniel 8, looking back again at the previous passage that spoke about him in the previous vision. I'll read to you what it said about this same Antiochus in chapter 8, verses 23 through 25. A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. There's that prospering again. And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints, exactly as we've seen of him. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. It's always in his own mind. That's how the kings think they're great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even, even rise up against the prince of princes. It's an Old Testament name for Jesus, God. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. I think it's referring to the same thing. He considers himself so highly that he dares to rise against God himself. I can take on God, my goodness. I can defeat all these other foreign powers. I can defeat all these other gods. I can mock and spit in the face of any other false god that's out there. I can turn my, my attention to this one and stand against him. Interesting phrase here. It says, uh, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. See that there? Several other trustworthy English translations render the phrase, he pays no attention to the desire of women, rather than the, 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 the one beloved by women. The text could kind of go either way there. What's going on is it almost certainly means he's simply just not under the influence of anyone else. Whether the, there was a one God that would be called in the pantheon as the one who kind of had influence over women, he didn't care about that God, nor did he care about anything that a woman would kind of turn his head one way or the other. You might remember in previous passages, I talked about kings marrying off their daughters to the other, other kings so that they would influence them. He didn't care. He wasn't under anybody's influence but his own. He is the classic narcissist staring at his own vision in the reflection. And that's the summary of the verse. His narcissism reaches such a level that he magnifies himself above all. And that's the point. He loves himself more than anything. Anything. This is true of so many earthly leaders, past and present, isn't it? In fact, if someone were to ask you, which of the kings of earth thought of himself as a living God? You could come up with any one of a hundred names and be right. In fact, it's especially pertinent that in the Bible, the enemies of God's people throughout the Bible continually convey this. Think back to the days of Pharaoh, the days of Egypt. Pharaoh thought of himself as a living God. The people worshipped him. He magnified himself above all and even tried to go toe-to-toe with God as he tried to rescue his people out of Egypt. 
The Assyrians did the same thing. You remember Sennacherib, the Assyrian ruler who sets his face against Jerusalem after his armies had already taken the northern kingdom of Israel. What does he send his general to say to the people of Jerusalem? We have destroyed all of the other gods. Yours too will fall. Sennacherib thought of himself in the same way. The Babylonians we know. You remember earlier in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar literally erected a statue, told the people to bow down. When they heard the the sound of the horns, they were to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar, pray only to him. Another occasion, he thought of himself as a god. The Persians likewise, the god-king rulers there who people worshipped and praised. The Greeks, of course, this is true of Antiochus and other Greek rulers as well. Even some of those during that same Greek ruling days, the Ptolemies in the south, they, they took upon themselves those same ideologies of the past. They called themselves the pharaohs, the, the gods of those around them. In fact, oftentimes, brothers would marry sisters and so on because they thought of their class as so high and elite above everybody else. They couldn't lower themselves to become unequally yoked and marry a commoner. They needed to marry another divine being. The only way to do that was to marry a sister. After them, the Roman Caesars would continue in the same way, saying that they alone deserved the praise and worship from those around them. Religious leaders all throughout history, even some of the popes, the great Asian conquerors of the Far East, considered themselves gods. When we came into the West, we found whole groups of people living here who believed that their rulers were gods as well. This is all over human history. In fact, even today, If you don't see your civil ruler bow to another god, it's because he is his own god. And this will ultimately and finally be true about the Antichrist in the end. The final ruler, earthly authority. It's not like rulers and authorities will finally, by the time of the end, get the picture and stop worshiping themselves. All the way to the very end, There will be one ultimate and final ruler on earth who will be destroyed by the coming of Jesus Christ. He will be known as the final Antichrist. Paul refers to him as the man of lawlessness and uses very, very similar language as to what we see here. Let me read 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. This is Paul in the New Testament telling about a future day. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, church, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes, listen to the language, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He asserts himself as divine authority over God's holy temple, the body of Christ. And as horrific and arrogant as this thinking is, it is just all too common among earthly rulers. In fact, it could be very true to say that all wicked earthly rulers are in some way anti-Christs. You know, 1 John says this, 1 John chapter 2 talks about multiple antichrists. It says this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. This means both that John's audience had heard about and were expecting a singular antichrist to come. But John was also saying, don't be mistaken, there are lots of them. You've already experienced many of them. And so, I think it would be right 
because antichrist simply means enemies of Christ or counter to Christ. I think that even when we find those great enemies of God and his people today, they are rightly known, according to 1 John 2, as antichrists as we wait for the final one. And each of them shall meet their maker in the end, and they will bow their knee before the one true king of kings. Verses 38 through 39 continues. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. Now, what is this referring to here? We already know he magnifies himself above all, but there is some nod, some acknowledgement to this God of fortresses, and they're trying to figure out exactly who this is. Some commentators think this refers to Jupiter Olympus. That's the same uh, God that the Romans called Zeus. Now, he was acknowledged by prior Greek rulers, Zeus, as as a God, but he was introduced to the Syrians and to the Palestinians in forms of worship by Antiochus. So he did something distinct that his fathers before him didn't do. Again, you might remember when we walked through the the, the past texts here, many of the kings during the days of the Seleucids and Ptolemies were syncretists. They were happy to let the local populace worship whatever gods they chose. In fact, on occasion, they'd pinch incense, they'd bow before those gods, just in political and diplomatic shows to keep the peace of the people. Antiochus doesn't do that. Antiochus sets his heart and mind against the one true God and introduces other false gods Others think maybe this is Mars, the god of war, who the Romans will call Ares. Others think that this isn't a personified deity, but maybe this is just war itself. So so rather than an individual like personal kind of god, he shall honor the god of fortresses. It's kind of a statement of the fact that he uh, only will fund and fuel a war machine. He doesn't care about what gods think. You want to know what his god is? His god is war. His god is conflict. His god is control. His god is power and brute force. That could be true as well. Whichever it is of those, it's quite clear that Antiochus' highest authority was himself. He's willing to pay homage to this God with precious gifts, but only to advance his own agenda, not because he's in subjection to another. It says next that he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Probably that same one that was just mentioned there, the God of fortresses. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. We all should acknowledge Antiochus does in fact receive spiritual help, demonic help. Chapter 7 told us of the four beasts that come out of the sea. One of them represented Persia. One of them represented, well, once Babylon, then Persia, then Greece. The last one I, I argued I think is Rome. And that Greek uh, leopard-like beast that came out of the sea was the supernatural, the spiritual force behind these earthly kings. I think, in fact, Antiochus was being manipulated by demons and submitting to them in that sense, whether he knew it or not. And he gains influence by bribery, by flatteries. That's the word that we used earlier about him here. He sells power for money. Nothing new that a ruler would do that. And those who follow him, they they benefit greatly in a material way. The text continues. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. Now again, remembering there were two major dominant world powers being talked about up until this point. The third is Rome starting to come in. The north and the south. It was the north and south fighting against each other. Kings of the north, kings of the south battling it out. 
And so, as I made a quick reference earlier in this sermon too, I made a quick reference to this. Some see in verse 40, can you go put verse 40 up there for us to take a look at together? Some see in verse 40 a third king. Some see this as referencing three kings, and it really comes down to how you follow the pronouns here. Look at this. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind. Do you see that? You see how that would make sense? It sounds like there's one king in the middle, one from the south attacks him, and the north attacks him. So three kings, right? But technically, the way that not only here in the Bible, but just even in, our, even in English, the way that we can track pronouns, this could just be referring to two kings again. The time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Who's the him? King of the north, who would be Antiochus. But the king of the north, reestablishing so we don't mix up the pronouns with the king of the south. King of the north shall rush upon him, king of the south, like a whirlwind. You, you tracking what I mean? So it could either be three kings or two kings, depending on what you see in the pronouns. I'll admit that when I first started reading this, it seemed like there were three kings. But as I continued to walk through the stories and the introduction of each individual figure, I became persuaded this is talking about two kings. And it's only using the terms there to help distinguish when using the pronouns. I think it's two, a king of the north and the king of the south fighting against each other. You you could disagree, that'd be fine. Although Antiochus was expelled from Egypt by the Romans on his last campaign there, told that about last time we were in this text, Ptolemy makes an attempt on some of his territories. So the Egyptian ruler then invades some of the southern portion of the Seleucid-controlled territory as he had in the past. But it doesn't work out too well for him. Because even though Rome had driven Antiochus out, now something goes down. He does defeat Egypt in this particular incursion against Ptolemy Philometer. Uh, Back then, I'd kind of shared that there was a a fracture in Egypt. And there were two powers, one in the western western dominant city of Alexandria and one in the eastern dominant city of Memphis. The east fell to the Seleucid kings, fell to Antiochus. And they kind of made a a treaty because they were were related to each other. There was a nephew and an uncle relationship going on there. Made a treaty. Hey, let's the two of us band together. We'll take over the other side of Egypt. It'll work out great. Well, both of them were lying and backstabbing each other. So the next time that Antiochus comes down against Egypt, he sides with the alternate king, the one in Alexandria, and then they go against Philometer, take him over, and Antiochus makes out very, very wealthy. He wins quite a bit of cash. And that's what I think it says here. He comes down with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. So Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites being mentioned here are just national uh, uh, borderlands. They are the countries that are right on the border of Israel. And throughout Bible history, those three have constantly been referred to as just great enemies of God's people. They hate the Jews. They're constantly battling against. Anytime they have the opportunity to fight or mock the Jews in any way, they do. They take advantage of it. Well, as you know, Antiochus is very much against the Jews. And so it makes total sense then. It'd be natural to expect that the enemies of the Jews would be seen at the very least as not a threat to Antiochus because they had a common enemy in the Jews. And at the best for him, they could have even been considered allies to his cause. In fact, 1 Maccabees even records that these neighboring enemies of the Jews took advantage of Antiochus' attacks and they likewise attacked the Jews. They saw an opportunity, they came on in. 
And that's probably why he didn't attack them. He did, those were delivered out of his hand. Antiochus didn't take over Edom and Moab and Am, the Ammonites, although he probably could have, because they were probably in some measure allies with him. Verse 42 and 43 continues. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. Again, as I'd said before, Antiochus is victorious against Egypt at this point. He sides with the other Ptolemy to fight against uh, the Philometer and wins and gets paid off quite a bit. And it says here that the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. Truth is, we don't know exactly what that means. That language could either mean that he attacked them, he took them over because they were allies with Egypt, and then he took them captive in a train, or it could mean that they sided with them as allies and followed behind him in his victory. Either one of those could be the case. We don't know in history, but the language would work either way. Verse 44 and 45 says, But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. After this incursion takes place in the south, there are two great threats, even greater than Egypt, for Antiochus at this time. In the north and the west are the Romans, who will eventually be his undoing. And then the Parthians in the east, who, while he's occupied with them, Rome makes the move. He actually probably dies while he's out in Persia fighting against and trying to win against the Parthians in the east. That's what he hears about, and he runs to go fight those off. But he will die. Even though in his great battles against the people of God and him establishing himself as a great enemy of God himself, he plants his palatial tents between the sea, Mediterranean most likely, and then the, uh, in the glorious land um, against the, uh, what they call the holy mountain. That would have been where the temple would have been seated in Jerusalem. Even though he had done that, his end shall come, and it shall come with none to help him. Antiochus died by a disease. It was a particularly grotesque disease, as it's recorded in 2 Maccabees. He's eaten alive by worms on the inside. And it's so grotesque that he can barely move. His body's just failing. There's no medical hope for him at all. No one can do anything about it. Eventually, he falls out of a chariot, and he hits the ground so hard that he crushes multiples of his bones. And again, no one can really do anything. But the disease continues to eat him away until the stench is so bad that the text actually says in the record of this that his own armies reviled him because of his stench all the way up to the end the jews of course saw that as god's hand upon him to show the wickednesses he didn't die gloriously in battle he wasn't even assassinated by stabbed in the back he went out in an awful way losing all the dignity that he had acquired throughout his days with none to help him as it says in the end there now why did god tell all of this to daniel why did God tell this to him? Why did he send the angel to give this level of scrupulous details about everything that was going down? You see, the Israelites were entering into a time when there would be no prophets in the land. They were told this was going to happen. It did happen. There was a period of centuries in which there were no spirit-filled men of God to deliver warnings 
or to tell the people supernaturally from God what to expect when they saw crazy things happening around them. There was nobody there to tell them and instruct them uniquely in this moment, this is what you should do because this is what's about to happen. You'll remember before Daniel's day, this happened with many of the prophets. Some of the famous prophets like Isaiah in the city as being attacked said, this is what you should do. Jeremiah, listen, they're going to win if you got, this is what they were present. Israel had men of God there filled with the spirit in the Old Testament in order to instruct them. And God was preparing to put the people into a period where there were not going to be any prophets for a period of time prior to the coming of Jesus. So what were these people to do? God wanted them to have a record to know what was coming so they would be prepared. If they didn't have a living prophet walking with them at that time, they were going to have the record from a prophet of what would happen in that gap of time. And they were to trust what God's word, that Old Testament writing of this prophet Daniel, had to say about it. It was to prepare them for what was coming. It was so that they would know, ah, oh, whoa, this, this, is, this is what was written. We should expect this. They're going to need to rely on what God spoke through Daniel and others for that period of time. What happens when bad things take place in our society? What do, how do people respond? Just think about that for a second. And how do Christians oftentimes respond? How do those who claim to be the people of God today, how do they often respond? Well, I think you and I both know that oftentimes doubt begins to creep in. When bad things happen, we doubt the goodness of God. The Bible says God is good, and then something terrible happens. The Bible says God will provide for and protect and watch over his people, and then awful things take place to us. Those are the moments in which our faithfulness can begin to wane. You see, the Jews were to remain faithful and to remain in the land. That's what they were to do. That's, that's literally, stay faithful to God and don't move. Stay there. The Messiah's coming here. You've got to be here to bring the Messiah into his kingdom. But the kinds of things that were going to happen to the Jews would be so extreme and terrible. The people were going to begin to think that God had either altogether abandoned them or worse, that he was unable to do anything about this. But nothing could be further from the truth. We have New Testament promises that help us in this. Because we are told, we are warned and, and, and cautioned, it's going to be a rough age. Bad things are going to happen. Indeed, all of those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to go bad. The enemy himself, the devil, will prowl around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, resist him, put on the supernatural armor of God. Spiritual battle armor. Why? Because it ain't going to be a cakewalk. All of us have to be ready throughout this whole age. We're told this over and over and over again in the New Testament day. And we're given these beautiful promises that even when we interact with and we encounter bad things, how are we to think about them? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God knows what he's doing. Somehow he's working this and he's not going, uh, I guess I can make something out of those scraps. It's part of the plan. He's working it for good. He has something in mind. Did you know the Old Testament had promises like that as well? The Psalms are filled with them, filled with, with, with kind of a, a gushing from the psalmist saying, things are falling apart, but God, you are good and we trust you and we know that you have this 
all under control. I want to show you one of those helpful verses from back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is the days of Moses, long before the days of Daniel, long before the days he's talking about here where the Jews will suffer extreme oppression in the Greek days. Deuteronomy 8, take care lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Wait, wait. so my generations now is going to live in the wilderness all our days. Every day, we, we won't be able to provide food for ourselves. We won't be able to provide water for ourselves. We're going to be surrounded by fiery serpents, scorpions, scorching heat, enemies surrounding us on all sides, and we're going to die out here. I'm part of the generation that's never making another promised land. We're going to die out here. Why? That he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Why was all this going to happen to the Jews? To humble them, to test them, to do good for them in the end. Brothers and sisters, you and I live under a same kind of promise, repeated again in the New Testament. Why would we have to endure these things? Why do we have to see all the wickedness play out all around us? Why, even when we are living faithfully, as much as we're able, even in our sinfulness, when we're able to, to, to find a way to honor the Lord with our lives and just have a lot of good things come out of it, why is it that we live in such a wicked world that bad is going to come upon us? That he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. God had forewarned his people of these things so that they would continue to trust him when things got rough. So that someone, when the conversation around the campfire goes down and the anxiety comes out, what are we going to do? Are we going to survive this? How is this bad stuff going? Has God left us? Is he, is he like not able to solve this problem anymore? Someone would come running up with the scroll and say, no, it was told. It was decreed. He knows. This was part of the plan. Daniel's prophecy provides them hope as it does for us, that they and we are not forgotten. God was then and is today at work in and through even terrible events. We ought to be the most resilient people in the history of the world, where our faithfulness increases as the pressure increases. When everybody else in the world, when bad things happen and things start to crumble under their feet, start to lose their minds, we should grow in our trust for God. And he writes things like this and records things like this to help encourage us. Oh my goodness, this kind of stuff has happened. And God was working this and doing this. And we are to trust his word even through all of it. The bad guy appears to win for so much of history, but things are not as they appear. The bad guys look like they're prospering all the time. Something new. And so we should not lose hope. If you're not a believer today, you need to know this is core for us. First, we know that as sinners, all of us deserve all kinds of judgment to come upon us in this day. None of us deserve a peaceful life. None of us deserve for suffering to, to go away in this day. No matter how good you think you are, you are a sinner. You have sinned against God. And you deserve his wrath, his punishment for all of an eternity. 
in hell. All of us deserve that. But in great love for us, God sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus goes to the cross, bears the punishment for sin. When we see the wickedness of the cross, the blood, the brokenness of Jesus, his physical body on a cross, we should remember that's what we deserved. And not for a moment, but forever in history, forever, for an eternity into the future. That's what we deserve. But he got it, not me. And by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. He died and was buried and he rose again to new life and you can have eternal life. Forgiveness of sins and perfection of heaven and a new heavens and a new earth someday. Peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is your only hope. If you're not a believer today, you must repent of your sins. Put your hope in nothing else other than Jesus Christ. And join faithful saints through history who've had to endure great hardship, suffering, trial, tribulation. We should all anticipate will continue and increase in our day until the return of Jesus Christ someday in the future in which he will finally vindicate himself in his holy name, bring an end to all the wicked enemies who have not repented, who have chosen, chosen to, they've refused to accept the truth and so be saved. And you and I, by God's good grace alone, can have eternal life. You need to turn in faith to Jesus Christ today. The Lord in his good kindness reminds us what happened in history through these inspired accounts that we can read and remember. Wow, we can zoom out from our momentary echo chambers and thinking of how, how central we are to all world history. No, this stuff has been happening for aeons. God does the same thing in his helpful reminder to us in providing communion, which we're about to take as a church body. It reminds us that we are not saved by ourselves, that we deserve death that Jesus, Jesus had to take, and he literally died, literally died, literally was beaten and broken. His blood was shed, as the cup represents. His body was broken, as the bread represents, and we're about to take that. And if you believe that, and it is your sole hope for salvation, is that Jesus died for my sins, apart from any work that I can accomplish, then as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come forward and partake. If you're not a believer, if you think that there's something other than Jesus that you need, works or, 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 or something else in the future that you can attain, then just let this pass because this statement is Jesus alone for salvation. We should be grateful for the great gift of communion that reminds us that we are saved. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word that records these things for us, that we would not forget, that it would prepare us for today, and that it would help produce faithfulness in us that multiplies in greater faithfulness to the next generation and beyond. But Father, in our day, we have the great blessing of looking back not only to Old Testament history, but we even get to look back to the days of Jesus with a clarity that even Daniel could not possibly have had. We know that our sins have been paid for by the death of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of communion we're about to partake in right now. Lord, please help us to love and trust the accounts given in the Bible. Where there is error in our thinking, Lord, please preserve us out from that error uh, to trust in you and continue to grow beyond it and uh, to, to act as wise men and women, not fools. Help us to love you and your word. Help us to honor you and what you've commanded more and more each day. Multiply our faithfulness, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ who died for our sins who gave his body, shed his blood for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.